Good day, you're tuned into Free City Radio. Uh, this is the 59th edition. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. It is Tuesday, the 14th of September, and it's a pleasure to bring another edition of the program to you. Um, thanks for tuning in and uh, also sharing the word on this podcast. Um, I should also note that Free City Radio is also a radio program that is slightly different. Um, sometimes there's unique interviews on the podcast or on the radio show. Um, the radio show broadcasts on Wednesdays uh, weekly on CKUT Community Radio uh, at 90.3 FM in Montreal. Um, so yeah, it's a, a weekly effort for both. Um, I'm going to start sharing the um, audio from the radio program also through the podcast network for Free City Radio. So I started that last week, and I hope you enjoy that also. Well, thanks for listening. This is the 59th edition. Um, on the program this week, I'm going to bring you some perspectives on Palestine. Uh, I hosted a conversation between uh, activists um, speaking on a panel, uh, new perspectives on international solidarity. So basically, we were trying to look at what the international solidarity movement in support of Palestinian human rights looks like today. This is, uh, you know, fall 2021. Uh, of course, we remember in May, there was the massive uh, bombardment by the Israeli state um, military that attacked Gaza. Uh, over 250 Palestinians lost their lives. Um, many organizations, including Human Rights Watch, have spoken about the fact that there were war crimes that were committed uh, on the part of the Israeli state. Um, also, the UN is investigating. Um, there's important uh, details and analysis that's looking into what happened uh, in detail through projects like the Electronic Intifada uh, .net. You should look that up if you can. Um, this podcast is going to highlight um, some perspectives that spoke um, or that were offered at this conference that I hosted in collaboration with Alternatives, which is an international solidarity and social justice uh, oriented organization based in Montreal, alternatives.ca. Um, I'm going to play for you the presentations that we heard uh, during the panel. So they were from the following um, panelists. Uh, we heard from Dror Varshavsky, uh, who works with the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement. That's a global movement uh, to uh, use the pressure of economic and cultural sanctions against the Israeli state to, to pressure the Israeli government to respect human rights in Palestine. Uh, this is, of course, a movement that's modeled after the global boycott and sanctions movement in support of the people of South Africa when they were fighting apartheid. So Gerard Varshavsky has been really involved in the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, BDS movement in France. So we hear from Gerard. We also hear from Jesse Stein, who's one of the organizers um, and initiators, authors of the Musicians for Palestine letter which is uh, a global network of musicians who issued a statement in support of Palestinian human rights and collectively declared that they would not be into performing at cultural events 
that were hosted by or linked to institutions or funding linked to the Israeli state or consulates. Musicians for Palestine is the initiative and the hashtag, so we hear from Jesse Stein on that. We also hear from um, Samir Eskander. Uh, he shares perspectives uh, and reflections on the importance of this moment in terms of the rising awareness of Palestinian human rights. And um, also, and I think that this is very important in terms of a localized example of um, the ways that uh, states and economies um, between colonial nations uh, sustain um, and support each other. So we're talking about the Canadian government and the Israeli government, and we hear from Mustafa Hanawi, uh, who's a community organizer uh, who's been involved in the campaign against the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement, and also more generally has been involved in Palestine solidarity work, is one of the uh, founders of Israeli Apartheid Week. So that's a lot of uh, voices, um, but I think they're important um, to hear like a diversity of perspectives from the Palestine solidarity movement. Um, so thanks for listening. They're coming up. And finally, we'll hear from Michael Link, uh, who's actually the UN special, special rapporteur for human rights in the occupied territories of Palestine, appointed by the United Nations. Michael is a labor lawyer um, based in Windsor in Ontario in Canada. But um, I think he offers a very important critique and perspective in regards to um, human rights and the contradictions of Canadian policy vis-a-vis -vis human rights in Palestine. Um, yeah, so those are the voices we're going to hear on Free City Radio this week. Uh, this is the 59th edition. I'm Stefan Christoph. Thanks for listening. Um, if you like this podcast, please tell a friend about it. Um, and uh, I share a new episode every Tuesday, so I'll be back next Tuesday. But here's the presentations from this uh, conference on, on Palestine that I co-hosted with Alternatives. Here you go. Uh, thank you for letting me uh, present the BDS campaign in France, the campaign BDS France, um, which is an example out of many uh, chapters of the campaign uh, all throughout the world. So the, the campaign BDS France is the, the French uh, chapter to the Palestinian call of 2005. There's about 60 national organizations, unions, and parties in the uh, BDS France campaign, in addition to 70 local chapters in different cities throughout France. So like any other BDS uh, campaign, it organizes campaign for boycott, divestment, and sanction, and in various fields. So it could be economic boycott, cultural, academic, sports boycott, or also devoted to military embargo, etc. Uh, of course, I will remind it because I'm the first one to speak that this is a campaign until Israeli complies with international law, human rights and Palestinian rights, including those of Palestinian refugees uh, outside of Israel, historic Palestine until they return to their home. So the campaign BDS France uh, partly react to the news uh, but it also holds long-standing campaigns. The current ones are mostly divestment campaigns that are targeting either the German sports equipment brand Puma, uh, because it is the official Israeli national soccer team provider. And also the other uh, current big target is the French insurance company AXA, because it subsidizes many projects that are 
taking place inside the settlements of the 1967 occupied territories. But today I'm going to focus on the cultural boycott campaign of uh, the Campagne de Dés France. I, I want to outline uh, uh, what we've been doing in that field. Uh, it's again probably similar to what's happening in other countries with some specificities uh, due to the situation in France. So the, the cultural boycott, as you know, is not one that hurts Israel on uh, economically much. It's a, it's a campaign that is uh, very powerful in that it hurts the reputation of Israel. And Israel is very keen on having a reputation of a educated, enlightened, modern, Western culture country. Uh, it actually spends millions of euros trying to whitewash its crime uh, by subsidizing cultural events uh, and artists and uh, exporting uh, those events uh, throughout the world. Uh, by the way, by doing so, it confirms that art is political and it's used by Israel as a political tool, something that Palestinians knew all along. So our goal is uh, to counteract this propaganda, to refuse to let Israeli use culture to hide its crime, and also to refuse to treat Israel as a normal country until it complies with international law. Uh, another thing about cultural boycott, it's also special as uh, in the fact that it aims at artists, it talked to artists, and through that, it also talked to uh, their fans and followers. Uh, so it can, uh, by, by uh, target, targeting or, or, or talking to artists, it uh, reaches millions of people. Um, and when artists themselves publicly talk, they talk to millions of people. And also, sometimes this crowd of, of uh, uh, followers is, uh, because it's a different channel than politics, is a different crowd to talk to than the one we're used to in the activist world. It's probably different and probably a younger crowd that we're talking to. Now, to uh, get to the, to the campaign itself, uh, I will say that we have three types of uh, um, action that fall into the uh, cultural boycott campaign. One, the first one would be French events that happen in Israel. For example, French artists that go to Israel to to perform. So I will take one example, the, the French musician Titi Robin. Uh, he was invited to play at the Jerusalem Sacred Music Festival in 2014. And this is a musician that had played uh, several times in Israel before and in Palestine, but he, he has uh, ties and, and friends and colleagues that he plays with in Israel. But this time, this was 2014, it was too much in, right after the, the war in Gaza, he refused to go. In addition, the Jerusalem Sacred Music Festival happens in occupied Jerusalem, and there's many other reasons uh, not to go there. But uh, the interesting thing is the first time he decided to uh, pull out, was the beginning of a reflection for him. And after that, he has strengthened his position. And this year, he has signed the Musicians for Palestine letter in 2021, pledging not to play there. So that's a way to see that how uh, uh, an, an event can has, have consequences in, in the long run. Another event that I want to talk about is the Eurovision that happened in 2019 in Israel. And there was a huge campaign in France. And for some, it could be a failure because there's no French artist that canceled his or her participation to the Eurovision. But to our, uh, in our opinion, it was a huge success because the mobilization drew over 100 French artists, some famous one, that signed an appeal for artists not to participate in Eurovision and for the Eurovision not to take place in Israel. And this was the largest artist list expressing support for Palestine in France ever. 
And uh, again, each one of these artists uh, spread the information to their followers through social networks. So even if uh, the artists that we are talking to end up going, those campaigns are, uh, we've noticed on the BDS France website that these uh, articles are the one who draw the uh, largest amount of people, the, the largest traffic on the, on the website. Again, because this is about culture and this is uh, talking to, to a much wider sphere than, than uh, politics. Nevertheless, this is still politics because talking about culture and talking to people interested uh, about culture, we nevertheless talk about Palestine, use our own uh, uh, narrative about Palestine, about apartheid, about occupation, colonization, about BDS, and we're this way spreading information and and uh, doing uh, uh, popular education. Another thing uh, is um, one may think that the recent uh, lack of recent victories, uh, this can be misleading because by now it's been uh, 15 years that the BDS campaign is going on. And there's a long list of artists that have either already boycotted or there's what's called a silent boycott, people who tell Israeli organizers that they won't participate to the festival without saying it publicly, or just artists that are known to, to boycott Israel. And for this reason, those artists are not even no longer even contacted uh, to perform in Israel. So we don't hear them about them canceling, but uh, that's because they've canceled ahead of time. So uh, the list is long, longer than what appears from a mere list of uh, annual victories that, that we have. So that's the first type of uh, uh, action that we have. The second type is the reversed one, is when Israeli events happen in France. So, of course, I'm not talking about Israeli artists. As you know, Israeli artists are not BDS target. We're not targeting, we're not asking to boycott Israeli artists. We're talking about the participation of official Israeli institutions in events that happen in France. So there are several examples. One example is the, uh, uh, for example, of, of a successful campaign in France was the International Comics Festival in Angoulême, uh, which is one of the most uh, famous and uh, one of the largest festivals of its kind in the world. And in 2014 and 2015, it was sponsored by SodaStream, the Israeli company. So there was a huge campaign. In the end, we managed to unite over 160 cartoonists from 20 countries around the world. And uh, after two years, the um, Angoulême uh, uh, gave in and kicked uh, SodaStream out. So uh, another example, of course, is Israeli festivals, festivals, cultural festivals in France that are there to promote Israel as a, as a country. And on uh, a side note, those festivals are usually annual, so they're easy to uh, it's easy for uh, for us to organize annually because we know when they're going to occur. Uh, one last point about this, which is not so much about France, but we have to pay attention because what happens in other countries can spread uh, to, to other countries, is the backlash that uh, um, artists have uh, experienced in Germany because artists who are open BDS supporters have been sometimes uh, their invitations have been cancelled by German festivals. So luckily this hasn't spread yet on a wider range. And also some of these uh, decisions have been reversed after uh, powerful campaigns. But this is something that we have to worry about. The right to boycott is also a campaign that may, may be necessary. 
And so I've talked about French events in Israel or Israeli events in France. The last uh, aspect I want to talk about is what I call the flip of the coin, is the, uh, the fact that the very existence of Israel is attempting to erase Palestinian culture and Palestinian culture history. And so as BDS uh, organizers and activists, we have to also support Palestinian and pro-Palestinian cultural events uh, all over the world and particularly in France. So this also means promoting uh, Palestinian artists, Palestinian culture, Palestinian participation in festivals, but also, and that's uh, sometimes a topic that's uh, hard to explain, fighting against the normalization, uh, the, the, this type of uh, thing of inviting one Palestinian and one Israeli artist to pretend to promote peace. War is not over, there is no symmetry, there still is an oppressor and an oppressed, and until the uh, invited Israeli artist uh, recognizes the current injustices and fights against it, along with the Palestinian artist, this attempt to normalize should absolutely be boycotted. Again, because those festivals are annual, I'm talking about uh, cultural events in France that are not sponsored by Israel, but that want to uh, maybe invite Palestinian artists, uh, we can uh, talk to them and, and warn them about this normalization risk and uh, uh, we've learned that it's more efficient to have this discussion with the uh, festival organizer ahead of time rather than doing it after the program has been published. So uh, that's a suggestion for, for groups uh, if, if you run into this kind of problem. So this is what we've been doing in France. It's probably similar in other countries. Uh, one, some specificities about France. Uh, you may know that uh, BDS in France is not easy. Uh, BDS activists in France have faced many trials. Uh, most of them have been won. Uh, I don't know if that's known, but it's still exhausting to have those trials and, and uh, go to court and, you know, and it's expensive and it takes time and you lose uh, days of salaries, etc. cetera. Uh, recently, the European Human Rights Court has confirmed that boycotting for political reason is legal in Europe, so in France too. Nevertheless, it remains difficult. Cultural boycott, on the other hand, because it's symbolic, has never been, uh, I mean, doesn't fall under the law. It has never been uh, targeted by uh, trials. Nobody has ever been tried for cultural uh, boycott events. The problem is not so much there in, in the cultural field, it's to get to the mainstream. So I'm going to take a second to talk about the most recent uh, action, the Musicians for Palestine letter that probably Jesse is going to talk about uh, in details later. But uh, many international musicians have, have signed it, including musicians that are famous in France, including French, famous French musicians. I'm going to name a, a few. Elie Medeiros, Titi Robin, Mousse Akin, Ashka, Kenny Arkana, Medine, those are very famous, even for mainstream media, nevertheless, and actually uh, international journals have mentioned it, even uh, in Israel, uh, journals have mentioned it. But in France, there's no major newspaper that have mentioned this letter. And this is typical uh, of a self-censorship of not wanting to, to deal with, with the subject. I mean, for the sake of, of completion, there are three uh, small and independent websites, Combini, Révolution Permanente, and Middle East Eye, mostly uh, activist or political or specialized in Middle East uh, uh, websites that have mentioned it, but no uh, big outlet. So I guess our, our next goal is uh, to break into the, the mainstream media. Uh, I don't want to end on, on that negative note. So speaking of the future, I want to uh, 
and with uh, one idea of campaign that we've had in France and that I've actually talked about with Samir, uh, and that is still kind of open. We've, we haven't really started because we don't know where to take it from, but uh, I'm just going to put it out for, for discussion. Uh, recently, Israel has been investing a lot of money in series, t television series or series for internet platforms such as Netflix. Those series are promote a, a nice view of Israel, a distorted view of Israel. They also distort the truth when they want to allude to the political situation um, in Israel in, in those movies. So it's a challenge for us. What can we do with this? There's no, it's not in the street. We can't pick it. Uh, how can we target them? We can try to convince people not to watch them, but how can we uh, know about this? Can we convince actors not to play in them? Can we convince platforms not to pay for them? It's really open question that I, we don't have answers uh, for yet. Israeli propaganda has adapted to new technologies. And so we as uh, activists also have to adapt our uh, strategies. And so um, I, I will leave you with this to think about and I'm looking forward to hear what uh, other people have to say. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Stefan. And uh, thank you very much to CKUT as well as Alternatives, which also I'm a member of the Board of Administrations of, of Alternatives. So it's really a kind of the, the timing is uh, perfect to have such a conversation about the idea of thinking through new the new perspectives on PDS and particularly where we stand now and maybe where we stood 15 years ago, right? And I think we're at a watershed moment that was very different uh, prior to this summer. And I think a lot of it is a result of kind of the work that has led up to this moment. And so uh, Labor for Palestine, one organization that I've been part of is a network that began after 2006, after one of the first major uh, trade unions, the Canadian Union of Public Employees in Ontario had adopted uh, boycott, divestment and sanctions resolution. It faced major backlash from the Israeli lobby, uh, from conservative elements within the Ontario government, but uh, it, opened a sh it opened a major door in terms of getting the trade union movement to take on its role to back boycott, divestment and sanctions, right? And we saw in Quebec, the first union was actually FINAC, the teachers union at the CEGEP level, uh, which is a federation within the CSN, had adopted uh, boycott, divestment and sanctions uh, it was the most progressive unions, right? It was the Conseil National uh, Metropolitan Montreal, which was the first uh, also trade union federation at a city level that adopted a BDS resolution. And where I'm going with this is that uh, we had seen an escalation, not only in Israeli violence and in Israeli aggression and Israeli apartheid, but we've also seen an escalation in terms of the solidarity. And I think uh, unfortunately, and I think this is something that uh, people faced within the trade union movement, but in particularly academics faced a particular backlash with the IHRA or what happened with the trade union Congress and the Labour Party in the United Kingdom, right? That uh, there was a strategy on part to sort of to actually undermine Palestine solidarity through the use of the IHRA definition on anti-Semitism, right? And I think it, it put us back um, in a way where we were on the defensive just to defend the right to be in solidarity with Palestine, just to defend the right to do BDS and not actually doing BDS. But I think we saw that change 
uh, with Sheikh Jarrah and what happened in Gaza this past summer, uh, I think we've never seen a watershed movement in terms of the level of mobilization and the spontaneity of the mobilization, I think had been the biggest in recent memory. And I think one of the dynamics at play, uh, I think now what we're seeing in the Palestine movement globally is that there was always a disjuncture between what was taking place in the solidarity movement and what was taking place in Palestine. People were saying, you know, that, that, that the movement was weak inside Palestine, but there was quite a bit of solidarity and there was always this disjuncture. And I think now we have this, this really dynamic moment uh, where you actually are seeing an incredible mobilization inside all parts of Palestine which was not witnessed before, right? This was in 48, uh, the demonstrations that were taking place, but also the repression in historic uh, Palestine. Uh, also the demonstrations taking place at the border between uh, of Palestinians uh, marching from the camps to the border in Lebanon or in Jordan, uh, to now the nightly demonstrations taking place at the settlement outpost. So we're seeing this huge outpouring of all forms of popular resistance in Palestine that need to be supported, right? And I think, and now we're seeing this, you know, we, we saw the letter, the, the musicians for Palestine, but most recently, uh, which no one thought would be possible in the Canadian context was actually the Canadian Labour Congress, the largest labour organization in, in Canada representing over 3 million workers, unanimously adopting a resolution calling for uh, an embargo on arms sales to Israel, right? And calling for a limited BDS campaign. Also the same, we saw this resolution passed at the NDP. And so when we're looking at these two, the, these two moments, the question I think concretely what we're facing is in the Canadian context or in the Quebec context, where do we go with particular campaigns? How do we actually hold um, everyone to account to actually sort of channel all of that energy that's been garnished now that with the mass mobilizations, with the ability to actually have all of these resolutions uh, passed in all different sectors within, within the universities, within trade unions. And I just wanna highlight maybe a few campaigns that really should be thought through or, or thought about because you know we're, when we're talking about BDS, we're actually moving towards the S part of the BDS, right? We're moving towards the question of sanctions, the questions of divestment, but also uh, a question of strategy, right? And I think one of the few things, uh, particularly that we've seen uh, trade unions heavily involved in, in the West Coast in the United States, and also talk within uh, British Columbia, is the longest blockade of any ship, right? Which is the Zim ship, an Israeli cargo ship uh, that was first blocked at the port in South Africa, then in Italy, then in Oakland. Uh, and so this is a campaign uh, that's really put forward a lot of grassroots momentum to actually concretely put up that picket line. That uh, So there's questions here in terms of the Montreal context, that there should be a declaration of, of, of unions who work at the ports uh, to actually say that ship will not be able to unload uh, at the port of Montreal or whether it be in Halifax. Uh, this is one campaign and that's been effective uh, 
in terms of, and now we're seeing this, you know, Israeli ships have to fly under different flags of convenience. Um, the other campaign uh, in terms of, of thinking through about, uh, you know, is Israeli crimes against Palestinians and sort of Israel's war machine and the role of labor and the role of, of public institutions has been that of G4S, right? And uh, G4S, uh, many and known, is an English or was uh, a London global security company, right? That was heavily involved in Israeli checkpoints and was heavily involved uh, in surveillance and the Israeli prison system, right? Which is key to the function of apartheid. And uh, G4S was actually purchased by uh, Allied Security. And people who don't know, just to make the link, Allied Security is actually uh, owned wholly by, it's a subsidiary of Casta Depot de Placement de Quebec. It is uh, the world's largest security firm uh, is actually a public entity of Quebec in sorts. So I think this is a really important campaign to highlight because we can mobilize and 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 this is all of Quebec's pension. Six million Quebec Quebec people in Quebec pay into this, right? So uh, I think this is a campaign that should resonate with the trade unions that we shouldn't be investing in apartheid and profiting from apartheid collectively as a society, uh, you know, through the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement, one of the things that we're beginning to see uh, is these small niche uh, companies prop up and, and uh, we're beginning to see, uh, you know, there's funding for research, particularly on militarism, which is taking place across campuses. Uh, and one of the things that has been set up is not just through CIFTA, which is the Canada-Israel uh, Research and Financing and Training uh, Fund, but also what's been called the Canada-Israel Infrastructure Fund, right? Which is a fund, an investment platform uh, that allows Canadian institutional investors to invest in Israeli infrastructure projects, right? And so these projects in particular also solidify Israeli apartheid in the concrete way. The LRT in East Jerusalem, right? Which has also played a role by Bombardier, solidifies what Jeff Halper calls the matrix of apartheid, right? That slowly to eat up East Jerusalem and to integrate the settlements in East Jerusalem with West Jerusalem, much like the highway system inside the West Bank, which is to integrate it within uh, the settlements within Israel, right? So uh, Canada isn't simply a junior partner uh, in its support for Israeli apartheid. Uh, and I think we need to think through strategies to actually channel all of that, that mobilization and energy uh, that can hold the liberal government to account. And obviously it's no, it's no easy task when it, you know, this is the same regime that won't allow for an actual independent national inquiry into the genocide of indigenous children. Why would we expect it to do the same around Palestine? But we have, I think, a kind of momentum uh, to really to hold them account uh, on and, and to make these grassroots 
gains. And so uh, I'll leave it at that. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Um, so yes, as Stefan mentioned, I'm speaking today from New York City, which is the traditional unceded Lenape land, and today home to people who think of themselves from every scrap of earth on the planet. Um, which is not to say in any way that it's an uncontested space today or one where justice is achieved, of course, but rather to highlight how it's one of among many places from which we can think seriously about violent dispossession, about land theft, group differentiation in the social, economic, political, and cultural realms. And it's a place to think about how to fight for some justice in the heterogeneous present with all of its architecture of power asymmetries. So thank you to my esteemed co-panelists and friends and to Free City Radio, CKUT and Alternative for having me. Um, I'm here today as a representative and signatory to the Musicians for Palestine letter. Um, so I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the letter and then we can turn to some thoughts on human rights and solidarity. So Musicians for Palestine, um, is a letter or began as a letter, has begun as a letter that was launched on May 27th. And the letter is based on the idea of refusing silence um, on the incontrovertible fact of the violence of the occupation and oppression in Palestine and in solidarity with the demonstrations and popular resistance in Palestine itself. Um, and the letter articulated a commitment to refusing silence about the then and still recent Israeli bombardment, which killed over 245 people just this spring, uh, refusal of silence around the dispossession, forced eviction um, that people were experiencing and continued to have to fight um, from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah, which at the time uh, was experiencing a, a real groundswell of protests. Um, which continues um, a refusal of silence on the long-standing denial of the right to return for people who had been cast out of their homelands violently um, and left so many members of the Palestinian diaspora stateless, displaced and without recourse. Um, a, a call in the letter for stopping the funding of technologies that maintain apartheid um, oppression and specifically military action on behalf of the various governments that claim to represent us wherever we the signatories exist in the world. Um, yeah, and as well, uh, I think there was also a, a, a refusal of silence on, of course, ethnic cleansing, systemic violence, racist, social, legal, cultural infrastructures, which amount to persecution of a huge swath of human beings on this planet and the denial of their self-determination. So we situate our call for solidarity in this in a broader anti-colonial struggle and call on musicians uh, to take the material step of refusing to perform in complicit cultural institutions and insisting on the importance of public assertions of solidarity as well. So with this letter, signatories hope to lift up Palestinian musicians and the message of Palestinian people um, in their struggle for liberation. Um, so the, the letter circulated and was signed by a, a fairly large number of international musicians. Um, over 600 people signed the initial call. Um, some of them were rather famous <laughs> and some of them were working locally, um, but all of them release music, perform, um, some notable names uh, include A-Track, Asia Monet, Belly, uh, uh, Black Thought and Questlove from The Roots. We had Patti Smith, 
um, Nicholas Jarre, uh, uh, Serge Tankian from System of a Down, Rage Against the Machine, Thurston Moore um, from Sonic Youth, Tim Hecker, Talib Kweli, Tunyards, Run the Jewels. So many internationally recognized artists signed this letter, but just as importantly, uh, the distribution of the people who decided that they wanted to lend their voice to this call uh, was geographically extremely vast. There were people from, I believe, every continent, save, um, save you know, the, pol the polar continents uh, that signed this letter. Um, I'm pretty sure, I, I'm almost certain. <laughs> and, um, and certainly people from different linguistic communities and extremely different um, positionings geographically um, genre, in terms of genre, in terms of the kind of music that they make and the way that their music circulates. So that was really interesting. And all of these people who decided to sign this letter, um, you know, uh, were signing a statement that unequivocally supports the human rights of Palestinians. Um, so when I think about what this letter aimed to do or, or, or potentially could continue to do um, as a network of people who've made a certain commitment to keep their cultural work out of specific settings and to continue to advocate for Palestinian liberation is what can this work do uh, specifically from the position of one's occupation as a musician. Like what can musicians add to the important existing efforts to use human rights and the mechanisms of international law or uh, economic mechanisms to confront Israel on its atrocious disregard for Palestinian life. So this is something that I think is kind of interesting. And as Dror highlighted in his excellent talk about um, cultural boycott in France, uh, the withdrawal of cultural capital which is to say the refusal to play in certain spaces um, or the refusal to endorse certain politics that we deem unjust functions as a reputational rather than a meaningful economic threat. But that reputational threat is important. And George spoke so well to that, but I would also like to say that um, it also potentially functions as a profound uh, resource for consciousness shifting work um, and particularly in a landscape where there is so much propaganda where there is so much obfuscation um, using our our fora as musicians who exist in all sorts of different worlds on this planet um, is potentially extremely powerful so on a basic level, musicians know how to make noise. Um, so many people are first prompted to reconsider the political because an artist they admire invites them into an unfamiliar world or offers an explicit political message or alternatively is just able to re-describe a political constellation in such a way that the humanity behind it and the human cost of inaction are possible to connect with through both head and heart. Um, so this is in no way to say that music is an inherent social good. Uh, music can be used in all sorts of ways. Uh, we know this, um, but rather to acknowledge that its connecting potential and its ability to reframe are powerful tools to prompt inquiry. And for many, they, sh uh, they shape the way that we form our consciousness around issues, or at least provoke certain kinds of questions that allow us to dig deeper into the powerful and extremely important uh, organizing work that's happening um, in different uh, social justice groupings. 
particularly around this question of Palestine. Um, we also can turn to the sort of historical efficacy of musicians standing up against apartheid. So I'm thinking, of course, about Artists United Against Apartheid in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. Um, and the fact that they were able to garner support and shift consciousness around that particular moment in that time in that place. Now, we cannot make the mistake of imagining these two times and spaces as perfect translations of one another, nor can we make the mistake of imagining that the way that the politics works to stabilize these both instances of profound asymmetries of power are the same or can be fought with exactly the same tools. At the same time, we have much to learn from how musicians from around the world stood up and respected the demands made by South Africans who advocated a cultural boycott at that time. And we can think about the demands that are being made by Palestinian civil society and try to live up to what they're telling us and to truly listen. So the kind of connecting work that we can do um, and in an international internationalist perspective is not only about drawing attention to the places that may seem far away from me sitting in New York or when I'm home in Montreal, Palestinian, Palestine may seem very far, um, but it also calls on us to do the work of bridging struggles that may be happening thousands of kilometers away into conversations with those things that are happening in our immediate geographic vicinity. And this is the kind of work that musicians who are implicated in their own settings can do. Um, it's a bottom-up pressure that's crucial to contesting the false view that places are entirely discrete because power doesn't operate on exclusively a local basis and histories that animate spaces may be particular to times and places but they're also forged and maintained as is in the case in Palestine today across wider scales and this is why it's so important that we draw attention to the way that free trade agreements are functioning uh, and we'll have, I think, more discussion on that a little bit later. Um, but also how uh, in different geographies and with our different access to different places, we might have some rhizomatic potential to make connections that make the problems in Palestine and the, the fight that must continue there uh, legible and important um, in these spaces, such as Canada or the United States, where that power structure is maintained. Um, so I think I'm going to pretty much leave it there. I just want to end by saying that when we commit to revoking our cultural capital from institutions that are complicit in war crimes, and when we demand that the nation states to which we belong um, or have nationality live up to the legal and ethical commitments they purport to hold in our names, um, that is one form of solidarity work that we can do that hopefully can help um, in this wider struggle. And I think that it's important that we remember um, the power of cultural work, not only as it exists in the economic realm, but also how it can help illuminate um, the connections across spaces, not only so that we can revoke uh, our complicity in maintaining injustice, but also so that we can understand how, for example, um, in Canada, the continued dispossession of indigenous people, um, the revocation of their lands, I'm thinking specifically of the ongoing fight in Ganasitake, uh, is connected to and maintained by similar structures 
as the dispossession that happens in Sheikh Jarrah, as the bombs that drop in Gaza. They're not the same, but we can think about these things together in really important ways. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you to the hosts of this event, uh, my fellow panelists for their enlightening talks and to the listeners and viewers. This year, Palestinians across every inch of historic Palestine rose against more than 100 years of settler colonialism, against more than seven decades of forced displacement and ethnic cleansing, against more than 50 years of military occupation in the West Bank and Gaza, against the brutal siege of Gaza, and against Israel's repeated and ongoing massacres in Gaza that killed more than 240 Palestinians, including more than 60 children in May. As Palestinians rose across every inch of historic Palestine, we too, in the global north and around the world, came together to stand in meaningful solidarity with the Palestinian people in the struggle for liberation in historic Palestine and in the diaspora. And as Palestinians stand united together as an oppressed people resisting Israel's regime of apartheid, and it is apartheid as Human Rights Watch and the largest Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, have this year reported in detail, confirming what Palestinians, South Africans, and many others have long said. We ask the world to be as courageous as the Palestinian people in this urgent moment of crisis, as courageous as the Palestinian youth facing off Israel's militarized forces that are backed to the hilt by the US, the UK, the EU, and other powers. As Palestinians marked 73 years of the Nakba catastrophe, 73 years of forced expulsions, 73 years of apartheid, brutalization, massacres and pogroms that have never stopped. We ask the world to take meaningful, principled and courageous actions in solidarity with our struggle for liberation and justice. This year, like never before, the world has responded. The Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel documented the more than 300 academic departments, programs, centers, unions, and societies that have endorsed statements in support of Palestinian rights. Similar statements from individual researchers, scholars, university staff, student, and alumni have garnered more than 15,000 signatures. In Canada, more than 2,800 healthcare workers, researchers, scholars, and students denounced Israel's destruction of medical facilities and the killing of Palestinian physicians and healthcare workers in Gaza and called on the Canadian government to end its military support to Israel. Countless athletes, teams and sports stars have also expressed solidarity with Palestinians in recent months. Dozens of new apartheid-free zones have sprung up around the world, including sports teams, cultural centres, trades unions and others. In Canada, the online zero waste shop Reimagine company declared itself an apartheid-free zone and urged others to join. In the arts world, many thousands of artists have joined together to endorse calls from Palestinian artists for Israel's apartheid regime to be held to account under international law, and in many cases have pledged to uphold the cultural boycott of Israel, as we've heard. So let's take forward this momentum and launch ever more strategic, effective, and impactful BDS campaigns to end international complicity in Israel's regime of apartheid, occupation, and settler colonialism, and to achieve true freedom, justice, and equality for the Palestinian people. Thank you.
my presentation will focus on uh, on Canadian foreign policy towards um, the, the Israeli occupation of Palestine and uh, bring in what international law uh, winds up saying about the settlements, which are the, uh, the uh, engine of the occupation. Um, if I can um, begin actually with uh, a very recent statement, um, a surprising starting point, uh, Two weeks ago, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, uh, published a remarkable essay in the Financial Times. This is, I think, part of the promotion for his recent released um, uh, memoir of his time as Secretary General, um, where he spoke of, um, you can see, I've got two quotes there. He spoke of Israel's incremental de, uh, de facto annexation of the Palestinian territories to the point, he says, where the prospect of a two-state solution has all but vanished. He also goes on to say that, um, that there's a lack of any international legal accountability, which allows Israel to ignore the uh, volume of UN Security Council, General Assembly, and Human Rights Council resolutions uh, regarding the illegality of various aspects of its occupation. He also said the, the following, he said that the situation in the occupied Palestinian territory arguably resembles apartheid. He pointed to the fundamental asymmetry in power between Israel and the Palestinians. And he applauded the idea of the uh, formal investigation that was recently announced in the winter uh, by the International Criminal Court. Um, uh, and he says this investigation into potential war crimes committed in uh, Palestine is so important and it gives ground for modest hope. I want to look at uh, the, I guess, the, well, could, one could say the enormous gap between Canada's foreign policy, its official policy, and actually how it, uh, it winds up applying that policy <clears throat> with respect to the occupation. What I have on the screen is a summary, and this is in the exact language um, of the Canada's official foreign policy. It states that it believes in Israel's right to live in peace. Uh, it believes in uh, the Palestinian right to self-determination. It doesn't recognize Israel's unilateral annexation of East Jerusalem. Uh, it talks about a just uh, solution to the uh, Palestinian refugee issue. Uh, and in fact, mentions the key resolutions with respect to this uh, uh, that have been adopted by the United Nations. It doesn't recognize permanent Israeli control over the territories occupied in 1967, including the West Bank, East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. It says that the settlements are a violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention, illegal under international law, and it opposes the Israel's construction of a barrier inside the occupied territory. Um, looking at this on paper, our stated policy is not that bad. This was formulated in the 1990s and has largely remained unchanged. On the face of it, this should lead to a robust critique of Israel's conduct uh, as the occupation has become indistinguishable from annexation and say some indistinguishable from apartheid. Yet, if you look at our practice, it's really something quite different. Um, we have had a consistent policy over the last decade of uh, voting against resolutions critical of Israel's occupation. Canada in the, in the year since 2011 cast 119 negative votes um, against uh, these resolutions that were critical of the occupation. It didn't vote in favor of a single one until December of 2019, 
were voted in favor of one resolution uh, on Palestinian self-determination. And that was obviously because Canada was bidding for a Security Council seat in the elections that were held in June of 2020. I should point out that Canada was running against Norway and Ireland, who during that same period did not, neither of them cast a single negative vote in those resolutions uh, critical of the Israeli occupation during that period of time. And not surprisingly, Norway and Ireland beat Canada with respect to the two open rotating seats on the Security Council. When Canada negotiated the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement, the SIFTA, it didn't insist upon human rights provisions in the, uh, in the rene renegotiation of the SIFTA. Um, unlike the European Union, Canada has consistently opposed investigations against war crime allegations against both Israel and Hamas at the International Criminal Court. Uh, it was the only country in 2015 to oppose uh, Palestine's ascension to membership in the International Criminal Court. And it is consistently, it, it stated on several times, both in 2020 and 2021, that opposes the formal investigation that's now going on under the prosecutor's office. Um, when the Trump peace plan um, uh, was announced in January 2020, which gave Israel the right to be able to annex about 40 to 45 percent of the uh, of the West Bank and including the, the formal annexation of uh, of East Jerusalem. Uh, a number of uh, countries and institutions spoke up against it. Europe, the European Union said that any annexation would be a serious violation of international law. Pope Francis said there's the danger of an equitable solutions in discussing um, the, the Trump peace plan, Canada said nothing. All it said was, we're going to look at this and see whether or not it helps uh, moving forward. It didn't issue any statements either from the prime minister's office or the foreign minister's office with respect to um, the prospect of formal Diore uh, annexation. And finally, you know, when a concerned Jewish Canadian professor in Manitoba challenged the made in Israel label on various Israeli settlement wines and then took this into court. The Canadian government took the side of the Israeli wineries and said that the, this labeling of Israeli settlement wines as made in Israel is perfectly fine. Um, earlier this month, um, Foreign Minister uh, Mark Garneau uh, visited both Israel and, uh, and Palestine. Um, judging by his closing statements, Canada's policy is in many ways getting even more uh, antiseptic. Uh, with respect to uh, uh, the closing statement uh, following his visit to Israel, he reiterated uh, Israel's right to live in peace. He said it's fully, it's got a, uh, he, Canada fully supports its, uh, Israel's right to defend itself consistent with international law. It said in, in seven paragraphs, it had one critical sentence uh, with respect to Israel. Uh, and it said that the settlements and the home demolitions of Palestinian homes uh, constitutes a serious obstacle to peace and called upon Israel to cease such uh, activities and said there ought to be a two-state solution. Um, and then basically reiterated some of these safe points with respect to its closing statement after he visited the Palestinian Authority. He didn't use the word Palestine, by the way, he used the word West Bank. Um, but in neither of these two statements did he, it was the word occupation mentioned, which is um, a consistent pattern of recent foreign, uh, foreign ministers uh, never using that term. Uh, and of course, they now call the, uh, the settlement simply an obstacle to peace, rather than saying that they're illegal under international law. 
Um, in, two, in 1997, Israel uh, had signed, Israel and Canada signed a free trade agreement. It was renegotiated in 2018, 2019. Um, the SIFTA permits goods and services coming from the illegal Israeli settlements to be able in, to enter into the Canadian market tariff-free. In other words, the SIFTA agreement treats the occupied territories as part of Israel under the uh, a customs arrangement. Um, both the European Union and the Republic of Korea, when they recently signed or re-signed uh, free trade agreements with Israel, the settlements were expressly excluded uh, from their free trade agreements. And you can see I've cited uh, UN Security Council Resolution 465 from 1980, which specifically called upon states, and I'm quoting, not to provide Israel with any assistance to be used specifically in connection with settlements in the occupied territory. So what does international law have to say with respect to um, the Israeli uh, occupation and specifically with the Israeli settlements? Here you can see at the top, um, the standard language from the fourth Geneva Convention of 1949, um, where it says that an occupying power shall not transfer parts of its own civilian popu population into the territory it occupies. Um, settler implantation, according to a major UN report in 1997, uh, puts this phenomenon, it says, in the category of mass violations of human rights, which of course is consistent with these ready practice in the occupied territories. The UN Security Council passed a resolution in the closing weeks of the Obama regime in December 2016, resolution 2334, and it said that these settlements, including in East Jerusalem, have no legal validity and constitute a flagrant violation under international law. Extremely strong language coming from the Security Council. And you'll see on the bottom that the language in the uh, Rome 1998 Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court defined the transfer, directly or indirectly, by the occupying power of parts of its own civilian population in the territory it occupies as a war crime. And you can see that the language from 1949 from the Fourth Geneva Convention is pretty much the same in the Rome Statute of 1998. That's why it's actually fairly easy to say. If the world community considers, and this is one of the most, um, the fact that the Israeli settlements are illegal under international law is one of the most settled and uncontentious issues in international law today. And my most recent report to the UN Human Rights Council, which was uh, delivered last Friday, examined this question and I concluded that the Israeli settlements are a war crime under the, for, under the Rome Statute of, uh, of 1998. And interestingly enough, Canada has actually uh, enacted into its own domestic legislation, both the Geneva Conventions, you see there at the top, the Geneva Conventions Act of 1957, which includes the language that the occupying uh, power cannot transfer parts of its own civilian population into the occupied territory. We've also adopted the Rome Statute of 1998 as the Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Act of 2000 into domestic Canadian law, which includes word for word, the language um, that commits these, uh, these settlements uh, as a war crime under international law. So very briefly in the, in the few minutes I've got left, just let, let me briefly talk about um, accountability. Um, Israel has been in, has been has, um, been defiant of the hundreds of resolutions passed by the General Assembly, 
uh, by the uh, UN Human Rights Council, and also in defiance with the 31 resolutions adopted by the Security Council over the last uh, four and a half decades. Um, the Security Council said in 22 resolutions that the uh, Fourth Geneva Convention applies in full to the occupied Palestinian territory. It said with respect to annexation by Israel of the East Jerusalem and of the Syrian Golan Heights, uh, that the acquisition of territory by war or by force is inadmissible, a cornerstone principle of international law since 1945. Uh, with respect to the settlements, the Security Council has adopted seven resolutions beginning in the early 1970s and most recently, as I said, in 2016, saying that the Israeli settlements are illegal and a flagrant violation under international law. Not one of these resolutions has been obeyed by Israel. And you see this quote from the courageous uh, Israeli uh, writer, uh, Gideon Levy, who writes for Haaretz newspaper. No country is as dependent upon the support of the international community as Israel. Yet Israel allows itself to defy the world as, uh, as few dare. Um, I know I'm running short of time. So let me go to my very last slide um, with respect to um, the fact that we have a new Israeli government. Um, but we don't have any news ready policy with respect to the settlements. Uh, Prime Minister uh, Naftali Bennett has um, consistently opposed the creation of any Palestinian state, even a Palestinian statelet. And he's fa in favor in his days as an ordinary member of, of Knesset uh, of the full annexation of the West Bank. In his opening speech to the Israeli Knesset last month, uh, as uh, as a newly sworn in Prime Minister of Israel, he said, we will strengthen the building of the communities across the land of Israel, and we will ensure that Israel's national interests in Area C, which is the 60% of the West Bank, that Israel has de facto annexed to Israel, and we will increase standards in that to that end after much neglect in this area. So this is the uh, this is the language, this is the policy, this is the program of the current Israeli government. Um, and I can only imagine the silence and the conversation between um, the Israeli foreign minister and the Canadian foreign minister when they spoke about the settlements. Yes, there was the usual ritual. Well, the settlements are a obstacle to, uh, to peace and obstacle to a, a final resolution, but Canada's even dropping the, the statement, um, certainly in its discussions with Israel, that these settlements are illegal, let alone the fact that Israel, that Canada does nothing uh, to uh, to oppose the settlements and uh, does uh, if you know you almost imagine that their policy may be written in Tel Aviv when it comes uh, to um, uh, when it comes to Israeli settlements. That was a series of presentations um, that uh, were part of a conference hosted by Alternatives, which is a human rights and social justice organization focused on international solidarity. This was a panel uh, looking at new perspectives on uh, Palestine solidarity work after the Israeli bombardment of Gaza and Palestine this past May. Um, it's the fall now, and you know it's really important, I think, to take stock to reflect about where things are at in regards to Palestine solidarity work. And I think that these voices highlight that. We heard from Jorah Varshavsky, who's involved in the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, uh, aiming to pressure the Israeli government to respect Palestinian human rights. Dror is active on this campaign in France. We heard from 
um, Jesse Stein, uh, who is a musician and an academic and an activist, who is one of the initiators of the Musicians for Palestine letter, hashtag Musicians for Palestine. We also heard uh, a lot of voices here, but I think important ones, uh, from Mustafa Hanawi, who works with Academics for Palestine and has been really involved in a number of important campaigns for Palestinian human rights and is actually one of the co-founders of Israeli Apartheid Week. Mustafa addresses the importance of critiquing and drawing attention to the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement and the ways that colonial governments support each other diplomatically and economically. In the final presentation we heard by Michael Link, please uh, stay with me, uh, is um, important also in that regard in highlighting the contradictions of Canadian policy vis-a-vis -vis human rights in Palestine. Michael is based in Windsor, Ontario, and is actually the special rapporteur on human rights in the occupied territories of Palestine um, right now through the United Nations. So those were the voices that we heard this week on Free City Radio. This has been the 59th edition. Uh, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Um, this is a, a community podcast. I do this uh, through you know, a personal initiative. It's a labor of love. If you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend, encourage them to engage, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, I release a new episode every Tuesday. And also from now on, I'll be sharing the weekly broadcast of Free City Radio, which takes place on Wednesdays on CKUT 90.3 FM, which is a campus community radio station in Montreal at 90.3 FM. So that was a lot. Um, and I'm really happy to share all those reflections with you. Um, and um, I want to go out with a piece of music I love uh, from Jameo Brown Transcendence. And thanks to Noir uh, Sandhill for letting me know about this track. Uh, it's an awesome one. I'll be back next Tuesday with the podcast. And I hope you enjoy. And on Wednesday, of course, our community radio broadcast. So take care. I'm Stefan Christoph. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Spiridon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And um, talk to you soon. Take care. I'll be so glad when uh, well, well, the sun goes down. The sun go down. I'll be so glad when uh, the well, the sun go down. When the sun go down. I ain't on that sleeve